Okay, um, our next speaker is our co-chair, Dr. Mazur, um, at the Clinical Center at NIH, and um, Henry has uh, a long-standing history of uh, uh, his research into studying the uh, consequences of op opportunistic infections in HIV going back to the early 1980s. Uh, first description of CD4 count associations with PJP um, and TB and other things. And uh, we alternate uh, the topics every year. Last year he spoke to us about tuberculosis and there were some new data on that, but we thought it's been a while that we've talked about some of the more common OIs and what's new there, at least a refresher, especially focusing on some uh, of the nuanced issues of iris and some other things. So, um, Henry, welcome back. So thanks, Mike, uh, for everything except, oh, here it is. I was going to say leaving the uh, slide for uh, advance over here. I found it. Um, so I'm somewhat envious listening to the antiretroviral talks because in the field of antiretrovirals and HIV virology, there is a lot of new data, there are new drugs, and there are new studies to talk about. It was interesting that at CROI the last few years, other than TB and cryptococcosis, there's very little new in terms of therapeutic interventions. So what I'd like to do in terms of opportunistic infections is talk to you about some of the growing uncertainties we have about diagnosis. But before I do that, I'd like to spend seven or eight minutes talking about what we talk about every year at this course, and that is the status of uh, HIV in the district. Uh, I don't have any financial affiliations, and we're going to talk about HIV in the district, and then we'll talk about uh, opportunistic infections. So I think that uh, the question is, what does HIV in the district look like in 2017? And as I look around the room, there are a lot of people here who have been uh, exquisitely involved in the progress we've made in the last 10 years. And I think as a city, we ought to be proud of what we've done. And for the 25% of the audience that comes from outside of the district, I think uh, 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 you should take note of the progress that this city has made. But let me ask you two questions, first of all. I think you ought to give each other a round of applause. So the question is, you know, several, a number of years ago, we had uh, over 1,000 new cases of uh, HIV uh, in the city. How many new cases of HIV were there in 2015, which is the last year where uh, we have uh, uh, data? So what would you estimate? So let's take a couple of seconds to come up with an answer. Just so you have some idea of whether we're still at 1,500, whether we've gone up, whether we've gone down. As you're answering, that obviously depends on how much we're testing people, uh, how long people are surviving. Now, some of these data, Amanda Castell, who uh, knows the data exquisitely well, has been correcting some of my numbers, so uh, I'll make a few changes as we go along. So uh, actually, uh, a number of you uh, are right on the money there at 350. We'll look at that in a minute. Uh, what percentage of newly diagnosed HIV-infected patients in D.C. had AIDS, i.e. a CD4 grant less than 200, and the group that we'll be talking about shortly who are susceptible to the most severe opportunistic infections? So what would you estimate? 
And obviously this has to do with how early we're uh, uh, getting people uh, uh, tested and recognizing their HIV. So I need Mike Sag up here to tell me what this music is. He's deserted me. All right, so actually this group is uh, at least in the right ballpark. Uh, Amanda tells me that it's 22%. So let's look for a minute at this complicated slide and get some idea of what the, the outbreak in DC looks like. If you look at the gray shaded area there, uh, it's clear that the number of patients with HIV is uh, increasing, uh, so that now we're probably up close to 18,000, and that has to do with more patients who were uh, diagnosing and the fact that patients are living longer. If you look, though, at the light blue bars, those are newly diagnosed cases and you can see that for a while we were at the 1,000 to 1,500 uh, range. And now for a variety of reasons, we're down to about 350. And one of the things that we would like to do in DC, like San Francisco and Chicago and New York, we would like to eliminate HIV. And what we would really like to do first is try to get the number of new cases down to a very low level. Now, obviously, there'll be people coming in and out of the city. There'll be people that uh, uh, evade. Uh, surveillance for a while, but I think that is one of our goals, is to treat the existing patients and to reduce transmission so there are very few new cases in the city. And you'll see also that we still have the dark blue bars, which are the patients who have CD4 counts under 200, and those are the patients that in terms of opportunistic infections we still focus on. I also want to point out that if you look at CDC projections that were presented uh, uh, at uh, Croy and elsewhere, that if you look at modeling of the lifetime risk of HIV by state, even though we're comparing our city to other states, uh, even though we are making real progress in terms of reducing the amount of HIV transmission, the lifetime risk of HIV in the district is still uh, uh, unacceptably high. And I think we have to realize that while we're making progress, we have a long way to go. But again, uh, the city health department the School of Public Health at GW, the clinics, the universities. I think we really have an amazing amount of cooperation and collaboration. A lot of it which goes through Amanda Costello standing in the back there and the DC cohort which follows many patients and the Center for AIDS Research at GW which is coordinating a lot of the activities that so many of you take part in. I think we all know in DC where the majority of cases are. The darker the area, the higher the incidence. We all recognize this to some extent follows poverty in wards seven and eight east of the Anacostia, but there are areas around DuPont Circle where uh, uh, in the middle of the city where there's also a lot of HIV. I think we all recognize these patterns in the city. If you look at the stage of disease, again, just to emphasize the point I made a moment ago, if you look at the first stage of disease, there are a fair number of patients who still are susceptible to the opportunistic infections that we all know so well. And again, one of our goals is both to reduce transmission and to recognize HIV early so that no one gets down to that level. Before they get to that level, they get recognized and treated so that they don't develop the opportunistic infections, which we recognize can be so devastating. So what about opportunistic infections of patients with HIV AIDS? We all recognize uh, data, and this came, comes from uh, Kate Bukas from the uh, CDC, something that was in the Journal of Infectious Disease last year, that the number of cases is going down, and this is great, but the number of cases is not zero. 
And sometimes when I talk to fellows or residents, I'm amazed that some of them have very little experience taking care of opportunistic infections. But I think it's a, it's a focus of where you have trained. Because there are a lot of hospitals, and if you're at GW or Georgetown or United Medical Center, you still see a fair number of opportunistic infections. So they still occur. So the fact that they're declining doesn't mean that we can ignore them. We still, know how to we still need to know how to prevent them, diagnose them, and treat them. And there are guidelines, and it's interesting, first of all, to look at these guidelines that have been in existence now for 30 years, to see what is it that people are turning to. In other words, are opportunistic infections really an issue? And when we look at our data, while the opportunistic infection guidelines are not accessed as often as the bar on the left, which are the adult antiretroviral guidelines, you can see that about 260,000 people access guidelines each year, and they're not downloading them so much, they're accessing them. But this means that this comes up in people's clinical practice, they want the information. So I think if you looked across the country or in Washington, D.C., opportunistic infections are still an issue. And if you look at what it is they look up, they look up the common infectious disease. They want to know about pneumocystis, they want to know about mycobacterium avium, they want to know about toxo, and they want to know about dosing. And dosing and drug reactions are a huge problem, and these uh, online guidelines are obviously a great resource to look this up if you're not familiar with the interactions. But one of the issues about the guidelines, again, to reiterate what I said before, is that when you look at the antiretroviral guidelines, there are lots of new drugs, lots of new trials, the question about how to diagnose and treat opportunistic infections has a problem in 2017. Most of the data that we base these recommendations on were based on trials that were done in the 1980s and 1990s when life was a little bit different. We still have the same drugs and we know those drugs are effective, but one of the issues that has changed is are these infections still as common? Should we be using the same prophylaxis that we were using 30 years ago? And there are some infections like Mycobacterium avium, which is much less common in 2017 than it was 20 years ago. And thus you, thus you get a discrepancy between the two major guidelines that are out there. The ISUSA guideline uh, says uh, that MAC prophylaxis is not necessary anymore. The NIH IDSA um, CDC guideline still advocates it because MAC does occur, but it admittedly is much less. So the problem we have is that our data is not nearly as good now as it was a while ago. But what I'd like to focus on is really, what about diagnosis? We still have the same therapeutic issues. The whole issue of diagnosis of opportunistic infection has changed dramatically. And the question is, first of all, what can we rely on in terms of predicting when these occur, and what can we rely on in terms of diagnosing these infections? Because it's fine to look up in the guidelines, how do you treat pneumocystis, how do you treat pneumococcal pneumonia, how do you treat cryptococcus, but if the diagnostic tests are changing, if your microbiology laboratories are changing, then you've got to rethink, am I sure when I get a result back from the laboratory that I have what I really think I have? And looking over the audience, I could see from uh, the people registered, about half of you uh, practice at hospitals where I think you're very familiar with PCR testing. Another half of you work in outpatient setting where it may not be so evident what the revolution in microbiology is. 
So let's start, first of all, our operative infection is still occurring at the same CD4 counts than they were before the area of antiretroviral therapy. I think that everybody in this room is very familiar with these associations between pneumocystis, uh, toxo, cryptococcus, and so on. And we know what range of CD4s uh, to look for or look at in terms of when we expect these infections to occur. I want to remind you that these CD4 counts are much more sensitive and specific in HIV than they are in any other disease. No other disease is the association as tight as it is with HIV uh, and uh, these opportunistic infections. Now, there was a, an article uh, in uh, uh, the Journal of Infectious Disease which looked in a more recent uh, time frame at what the association of CD4 counts was with uh, opportunistic infections. And if you look at these data, which I've um, uh, whited out uh, something I'll show you in a minute. If you look at the 25th to 75th uh, percentile, you can see that this association between 2000 and 2010 was just what we would have expected uh, um, uh, 20 years ago. What this article showed, though, is if you look at the 95th percentile, you can see that there are a fair number of opportunistic infections which are reported I want to emphasize which are reported to occur at much higher CD4 counts. And the question is, why is that happening? Last year and the year before, we talked about immune reconstitution syndrome and the problems distinguishing what really is an acute infectious process where you get proliferation of organisms as opposed to an immunologic reaction to latent organisms or infection. I think a lot of these represent iris. And when you, uh, when you focus down in a more granular way on the, on the data, uh, you find that a lot of those are happening as you're starting antiretroviral therapy. Now, it's a debate, it's a dispute as to whether or not a debate, whether or not you should treat them with anti-infective therapy. I think most clinicians would. But I think the issue is these are different phenomena from what we were seeing in the pre-antiretroviral pre era. So the association between CD4 counts and active opportunistic infections is still the same but that's overlaid by iris and by the fact that CD4 counts are a biologic variable. And we've always known that CD4 counts are just an estimate, that there are some cases of pneumocystis and cryptococcus and CMV that will occur outside that range. And if you just look at the example of these cases of pneumocystis, you can see that uh, about 5% occurred at CD4 counts over 300. About 10% total occurred over 200. So the point is, Always, even in the early area, there's, era, there's some opportunistic infections that simply occur above these guidelines, which are arbitrary, but which help us predict when these events are going to occur. So the bottom line is that CD4 counts remain a reliable predictor of the occurrence of opportunistic infections, and the criteria general guidelines, the, uh, the episodes that occur at higher are either biologic outliers or they're probably cases of virus. The other thing that has come up in the literature is should viral load be a consideration and when to start or stop opportunistic infection prophylaxis. And I think the issue is illustrated in this case here and we'll ask for some uh, audience response. So you have a 30-year-old uh, female who has a baseline uh, HIV viral load of 78,000 and low CD4 count. Uh, she started on a lopinavir ritonavir based regimen that she's been on for three years. Her current labs show that she is virologically suppressed. Her viral load has come up, not perhaps as high as we had hoped over three years, but it's up to 187. She's toxo-IgG positive. 
She is on prophylaxis. And the question is, at this CD4 count between 100 and 200, with a long-term virologic suppression, what would you do with a trimethoprim sulfa? And I'm not sure there's an absolute right answer, but let's uh, uh, answer this question. What would you do in your practice? CD4 count between 100 and 200, virologic uh, uh, viral load suppressed for a considerable period of time, more than, more than uh, six months. So what would you do? All right, so actually there's a, a, a variety of things. Some people would stop, most people would continue at least uh, for a while. And I'd like to make a comment about some data which I know that I have shown at meetings, that Mike Sag shows at meetings, and the more I look at it, the more confused I get by the data, uh, suggesting the bottom line I'll show you in a minute is that while I think that viral, viral load is interesting and it does decrease your susceptibility, I'm not sure it's predictable enough that you should really get away from using CD4 counts as your indicator. And I think what this is based is uh, there is the so-called COHERE study, which is a group of cohort studies, which have looked at pneumocystis and, as I'll show you in a minute, toxo, uh, in patients at a variety of CD4 counts. They've looked at a variety of viral loads. And this is not a prospective randomized trial. This is an observational cohort. And we, which they look at patients who are on uh, prophylaxis and off. And what it shows, if you look at the left-hand side there and compare the uh, bar with a star to the bar without a star, is that at least in the patients less than 200, being on prophylaxis is good in that if you're off prophylaxis, your likelihood of getting pneumocystis is higher than if you're on prophylaxis. The rest of the slide I find more and more confusing because there's so much overlap between the bars. So I don't think actually this, this to me, shows as clearly what the author suggested, which is that if your, count is, if your CD4 count is 100 to 200 and you're virologically suppressed, that there really is no benefit to prophylaxis because those confidence intervals overlap. And these authors recently uh, published at CROI, or they presented at CROI, a similar study about stopping secondary prophylaxis. They also asked the question, do you really need toxoprophylaxis between 100 and 200 if you're virologically suppressed? And the answer, without showing you a similar confusing graph, is that it is not safe to do in that point. So my point is that CE4 counts are still a reliable predictor. Viral load has a measurable but small effect on the occurrence of opportunistic infections. And using CD4 counts should still be your criteria for starting prophylaxis and stopping prophylaxis. I wouldn't get hung up on viral load. Again, since Mike Sag, I think, has presented this here and elsewhere, he may have a different opinion later. So let's talk about a third issue, which is managing HIV-related opportunistic infections in the new era of microbiology. And I think that, at least when Connie Benson and Mike Sag were uh, uh, training in ID, what microbiology looked like was gram stains and culture plates 
and uh, fermentation. And this is still what many laboratories uh, do today. But I think that one of the things that's important to realize is that there's a real revolution in clinical microbiology. And if the laboratories that you're using uh, have not done this so far, they're soon going to be using mass spectroscopy or uh, the so-called MOLDI-TOF, which many laboratories use, to do rapid, uh, very specific uh, uh, species and genus uh, diagnosis of cultures and, to some extent, uh, organisms from clinical isolates. There are a variety of PCR techniques, like the gene expert for TB, that will look for organisms in blood, in bronchovial lavage, in sputum, in spinal fluid, and in uh, diarrhea. And the question then is, when you get the result here, can you have the same uh, confidence when you get a result that a positive result means that the patient has the disease that you decide uh, is the cause of the syndrome that you want to treat. So I'd like, want to talk a little bit about serologies and PCR, just to give you some flavor of the fact that as new tests are developed, we really have to understand what they mean. And with some of them, like beta-glucan and galactamine, I think we have some sense of what they mean. I'm not sure in many situations what some of the PCR results really mean in terms of our understanding why patients, whether patients have the disease that we think they do. So let's look at a case for a minute. 46-year-old uh, MSM with HIV and alcoholism uh, who's not adherent to their uh, various drugs has a low CD4 count, 18, high viral load. They've had a variety of opportunistic infections in the past. And then they come in with several days of a non-productive cough, which is getting worse with higher fever and new onset of shaking chills and shortness of breath. So the question is, what is this? The physical exam shows that they're febrile and they have lots of rales. They're relatively hypoxemic. Uh, they can't produce too much sputum, but they show uh, mixed flora on gram stain, that antiquated uh, uh, test that I showed you a minute ago, and they're a little bit leukopenic. They have a chest x-ray that uh, doesn't tell you too much, except that they have extensive disease. The CT shows you a little bit more, and again, you can see that, that this is a real disease. So even though the patient's a little bit hypoxemic, they wind up doing bronchoalveolar lavage. And here's the question I want to pose to you. So the gram stain and wet mount are negative, so that doesn't help you. The direct immunofluorescent stain for pneumocystis is negative, but the multiplex PCR is positive for influenza, rhinovirus, CMV, and pneumocystis. So for some of you who haven't trained in the era of PCR detection, what do you make of that? So the question is, what treatment would you initiate? So let's look at these options. And the question is, with somebody who has a variety of positive PCRs and that clinical presentation, what would you do? So let's start the polling. And I can tell you while you're answering this, that if you ask 10 ID specialists at NIH, each one would give you a different answer which shows you that either we don't have enough experience or there's a lot of uncertainty here. Okay, so I, I can't um, argue with uh, your giving trimethoprim sulfur and oseltamivir. The question though is, number one, is there any other test that would be helpful? And number two, can you be confident that that test is telling you what you think it is. Again, 
I'm all for being practical and giving drugs when you think there's a possibility they have active influenza or trimethyl sulfa. The question here was, the issue here is not so much telling you what the right answer is, the issue is to bring up the uncertainty that's involved. So let's take my pneumocystis for an example. One thing that might help you in this is if you got a serology. So for instance, LDH in the past, people proposed as being a test for pneumocystis, but it's really a test that looks at the severity of lung damage and it's not at all specific. A test which is more popular among some people is using beta-glucan. The question is, would that help you with that PCR diagnosis? Because glucan is a component of the cell wall of almost all fungi. There are a couple of exceptions like cryptococcus and mucor. Uh, there are false positives with the beta-glucan, and you can see a lot of things that could cause a false positive in your patient. You can see that uh, there are false negatives, and the false negatives depend to some extent on what cutoff your lab uses for a positive versus a negative. But I think the bottom line on the beta-glucan is that if you try to use that as a test to help you make a diagnosis of pneumocystis, if you look on the left side there, you see that some pneumocystis patients have high beta-glucans, some have low uh, beta-glucans. If you look at patients who by immunofluorescence do not have pneumocystis, a few of them have high values, a few of them, uh, more of them have low values. So the take home message to me here is that there is some value to this test, but it is not very sensitive and it's not specific enough to really be useful. So I'm not sure this would help you. So that the beta-D-glucan to me is positive in a lot of different fungal diseases. It might have been positive in this patient because they had uh, mucosal uh, candidiasis. There are a lot of false positives and negatives, but it's not specific, so I personally wouldn't use it. But what do we do with the PCR that now in laboratories is replacing conventional microbiology because it's faster, it's cheaper, it requires less labor? And, you know, there's an interesting article in the Journal of Medicine on the prospective etiologic investigations of community-acquired uh, pulmonary infections in patients living with HIV that I think exemplifies this issue. And, you know, medicine has a lot of uh, large reviews. And what this looked at was 234 cases of community-acquired pulmonary infiltrates. And there are two important columns there. If you look at the left-hand column, you can see that they made a variety of diagnoses using clinical manifestations and conventional investigations. But if you use the expanded diagnostics, which meant PCR, you can see that the spectrum of diagnosis changed dramatically. So the issue was, if you looked at the patients, and this is uh, just to make an effect, not to look at the specifics, there are patients who had multiple pathogens. They might have had pneumocystis and influenza and coronavirus. Uh, they might have had CMV. So there's a lot of pathogens there, some of which we know from pathology are not pathogens in the lungs. CMV almost never causes uh, pulmonary infiltrates in somebody, or in somebody with HIV. It causes pulmonary disease in other populations. So that you see a lot of viruses that are shed. We know that in immunosuppressed patients, prior episodes can result in shedding for months and months and months. So what we don't know is which of these organisms are colonizers that are not causing disease, which of these organisms are shedding from prior episodes. So the question is, what do we make of this? And I think one of the things you have to realize is that, for instance, PCR is being offered 
for a variety of respiratory infections. You can get this on nasopharyngeal washes or swabs. You can get on sputum, bronchoalveolar lavage. And one issue that will affect this is how good is your sample. The other issue that will perhaps help you is whether the cycle number is high or low, whether it took a lot of uh, replications to find an organism. But there's a lot of variation there in terms of how you obtain your specimen. But if you look at what's being offered, one of the most popular um, uh, diagnostic tests is being offered by BioMiriu, and it's called the BioFire Film Array. And if you look at all the viruses and bacteria that are being offered on the respiratory panel, if you look at all the organisms being offered on the CFCF assays, you see you get a lot of information on a lot of organisms. If you look at the GI, you see a lot of bacteria and viruses and parasites. And each of these presents a different problem in what do you make of it if they have a small quantity of E. coli or salmonella or an enterovirus? Is that the cause of the syndrome you're finding? Or is that simply background noise since we can detect really tiny amounts? And as we look at the, uh, 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 the NIH IDSA CDC guidelines, one of the problems I think we're beginning to face is while we can tell you, based on older data, how to treat these entities, with the newer data that you're getting from the labs, that's not at all clear. And I think what we need is we need a lot more information on how to uh, detect this. And for instance, in the case of pneumocystis, when you have somebody who has a negative DFA, our experience over the years is almost never do they really have pneumocystis. Yet now we're finding more and more patients who have a negative DFA but have a positive PCR. And the question is, is this simply colonization, because we know that patients can be colonized by pneumocystis and not develop disease, or is this disease that we missed in the past? We have autopsy data, we have biopsy data from the areas when we used to do both, suggesting that's not the case. But for many of these syndromes, whether it's GI syndrome, or respiratory syndrome, a neurologic syndrome, the question is, can you really be certain if your laboratory tells you that it found a certain virus, or a certain fungus, or a certain bacteria in one of these specimens, or in blood, that that is in fact the cause of the syndrome? And blood is another example. We know from medical school days that when you brush your teeth or uh, you have some GI uh, event, there are bacteria that circulate in your blood. When you find tiny amounts of E. coli or streptovirus in your blood, is that really the cause of the syndrome that you're trying to understand, or is that simply background noise? So these new tests are wonderful. This is the BioFire blood assay to show you the organisms there. But what we don't know is how to interpret the data. We also have to recognize what's in these assays and what isn't. And for instance, in the respiratory panel for this one commercial uh, uh, test that I uh, was referring to, they don't look for fungi like histo and crypto. They don't look like Legionella. So one of the things you have to recognize is what are they testing for and what they aren't. You can't just say the respiratory panel is negative. You have to know what is uh, negative for. So, I think in opportunistic infections, we know that CD4 counts are reliable. I think that virologic uh, loads are interesting, but probably should not be an important determinant whether you start or stop prophylaxis. I think that we know a lot of drugs that are effective for treating opportunistic infections, but the real issue is, as the microbiology laboratories change, how do we make these diagnoses? And I wish 
in 2017 I had some answers, but I think what you have to be is a little bit skeptical as your labs make these transitions. And especially if your lab is one that sends everything out to Mayo or to Quest, you need to find out what it is they're doing before you blithely look and see, say, this patient has pneumocystis, this patient has um, uh, uh, salmonellosis. You need to see what's the basis of the test, and then is it logical what you're saying so that you make sure you're treating like the right pathogen. So my hope is that next year at CROI, there will be more work on preventive drugs, prophylactic drugs, on therapeutic drugs and diagnostics, uh, and that we'll have more information to tell you about how to use these tests. Thanks very much. Great. Thanks very much. So it's, even get, it's going to get even more complicated, I think, because these uh, sometimes send out or even in the, some hospitals. It's not too hard to imagine a day where we're in the ICU, somebody comes in, they're septic, and you stand there almost like bones from Star Trek, except you have, you know, some little thing in your hand and you put a little sample in there, and a minute later it pops up with a bunch of possible answers that are positive by some immediate biomarker. Um, how do we, how, what is the way forward to distinguish the truth? What is the type of studies that you think have to be done? Like sort of what we did back in the day. Yeah, well, I think the qualitative tests are good for certain things. If you find qualitatively that there's TB or cryptococcus in the spinal fluid, for instance, or there's TB anywhere, I think it's, it's hard to argue with treating that. I think for the others, there needs to be some kind of quantitative uh, way of assessing whether you're looking at minute amounts or you're looking at something more substantial. Because again, we know that if you get a positive blood culture for pneumococcus or for salmonella, that's real. Uh, what we don't know is if you get tiny amounts of something in stool or spinal fluid, whether that's relevant. So without some quantitative effect or some other biomarker to go along with that, I think we're, we're left with a uh, test, which is a great rule out. As a negative, it can rule something out, but as a positive, it's a little more uncertain as to how to rule it in. One other thing that comes up in the real world a lot, uh, especially from the old days, but even now, we've met somebody newly diagnosed, they've got advanced disease in the door, they get put in the ICU and they've got PJP, everyone gets it, they put, get treated appropriately, but they don't get better. And then you do a BAL and you see CMV, or in this case you might get a positive uh, respiratory panel that shows CMV or something. Do you treat that? What do you do in that setting? Um, I think people have been debating about CMV in HIV for a long period of time, but I think if you look at almost every series, CMV is not a significant pathogen causing uh, lung disease. And you can find a few cases in the literature. So when it comes down to what's practical, I think while in most cases I think that when you find CMV you have to keep looking for something more logical and you have to look for the non-infectious whether it's congestive heart failure or pulmonary embolus or pulmonary hypertension or some other infection. We, like everybody else, when we're desperate, we will treat the CMV. But almost never do I have any confidence that really is the cause of the pulmonary dysfunction. I don't know whether in Alabama, no. since you have a lot of herpes virologists there, whether you feel differently. No, I, I, what we've done is we've relied on actually a transbronchial biopsy if you can get it done. Sometimes they're so sick you can't. But there have been occasions where you see actually allies inclusion bodies 
And that's hard to argue with, and we would treat those guys. But yeah. Well, well, it's hard to argue, but just since Mike and I can argue, uh, we did a, a study probably 25 years ago in here where we were doing um, transbronchial biopsies. And if you looked at the people with pneumocystis, um, uh, there was no difference in their outcome whether they had a CMV inclusion or not. Now the problem is sampling, it depends whether you're talking about one CMV inclusion or a lot, but it's complicated because again, this is not, uh, uh, it's not always easy to uh, sample the right area, but at least our data would suggest that lots of patients got better on trimethrim sulfa alone, even if they had CMV inclusion bodies in a biopsy. But again, uh, everybody likes to quote only their own work. That's right. We we, we call it the inclusion criteria, but that's uh, a whole other story. Um, so this is a question from uh, the audience. And, uh, so they're looking at healthcare outcomes for people living with HIV, and the focus has been on viral load suppression, how many, what proportion of their patients are suppressed. Um, and the question is, is your argument that we must, must, that's a direct quote, must, must look carefully at CD4 as well? Uh, I'm sorry, so the question is, should so you look for... To, for health outcome assessment, to see how you're doing as a clinic, uh, everyone's looking at the viral load as a health outcome. What about CD4, and is that something that play, comes into play? Well, I guess it depends on, on what way you're looking at it. But if the question is, is that a marker of clinical success, that we have less control over. We have control over virologic uh, load, at least in terms of the fact that we can give the patients the right drug and try to give them adherence counseling to take it. Whether or not their CD4 counts go up once they're virologically suppressed is a area of frustration when your CD4 counts don't go up. So I guess I would personally look more at viral suppression rather than CD4 counts, but it is a marker of the success of screening programs in the city as to whether you're identifying people early at a high CD4 count versus low, that's a marker for your public health I think you should look at. Right. And I, I think a year or two ago I had some questions on <clears throat> how often do you measure CD4 count, and it changes, right? So if somebody's like at, at this setting where they've got uh, prior toxo and you're trying to figure out what to do with your prophylaxis, you're going to follow CD4 until it gets above 200 and act accordingly. But once somebody gets a CD4 count above 500, and it's pretty well sustained, and they've got suppressed virus. Most of the guidelines now are saying stop checking, because you're really just spending a lot of money on a test you're not going to do anything with, right? So a lot, I think the HRSA still requires it or asks for it as part of the quality metrics, but um, uh, I, I think it's really not necessary uh, after a period of time, and sometimes the patients obsess over, and I was 875 last six months ago, and now I'm 872, or am I getting worse? No, uh, so it just, it, it takes that away. Uh, question. Um, I know there's disagreement on MAC prophylaxis, but is anyone doing, uh, if you choose to do MAC prophylaxis, does anyone do MAC um, cultures before starting? Uh, the answer to that is uh, no, Nat. Connie Benson is actually the world's expert on mycobacterium avium, but screening people beforehand, I don't think it's helpful for a variety of reasons. One is that patients can be colonized uh, intermittently, either in their bronchus, occasionally you find it in their stool or their urine. And they've looked before, that is not a, a, a particularly good predictor of who's going to develop disseminated disease. It's probably a sensitive predictor in that if you have no MAC, 
you're not likely to develop disseminated disease. But lots of people who never disseminate can have MAC found in one place or another. So I don't think it's a cost-effective way of uh, screening people. And once that you have them under care, the hope is their CD4 count will go up fast enough that they're not susceptible anymore. Well, uh, again, comparing, uh, you can prepare for an iris, but I'm not sure what you should do to prepare. <laughs> uh, if Dr. Sag could tell us what to do to prepare, uh, uh, maybe I'd rethink that. Well, we, could do, uh, we could do drills like we did in the early 60s where you just get under your desk and hope that you, know, you don't get attacked or something. But no, I don't think there's any way to prepare. Just, but to be vigilant for it is clearly it, right? And I think that's the point of the new guidance that says don't necessarily prophylax because the therapies are so good now especially with integrase inhibitors, the virus goes undetectable sometimes in 12 weeks, and the immune system recovery is there. You could get iris if it's there, but at that point, if they had MAC and it was occult, and then the, treat, the HIV treatment brought it out, okay, fine, then you treat then, and you, you go after it then. <coughs> okay, any other questions for Dr. Mazur? All right, thanks. Thank you.